This is the Downey's DM Podcast. All right, everybody. Hello and welcome back to the Down East EM podcast. Thank you for joining us for our review of the adrenal trial and the use of steroids in septic shock. But first, before we get into it, I have a new voice, a new person to be introducing you to. Welcome, Sam Potter. Sam, tell us a little bit about yourself. Thanks for being on the podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So I am one of the second-year residents here at Maine Medical Center and been interested in getting involved in the world of podcasting for a little while, so super thrilled. Thanks so much for having me on. Fantastic. Yeah, it's great to have the residents involved. It's great to see that energy and that interest in foam and the expanse of it, so super happy to have you. So yes, yeah, so we're going to be talking about steroids in septic shock, and this is not a new topic. It's been discussed many times in the past. There are many different trials, but in particular, we're going to be working with and reviewing the adrenal trial. Now, I remember myself as a resident reviewing in Journal Club the corticus trial. And coming away from that, I remember thinking, forget about the corticotropin test, which I didn't really understand that well and was very happy to hear that it didn't affect outcomes. But steroids, you know, they may not save lives, but in that study, it looked like they reverse shock, which isn't bad. So I kind of bought onto the idea of using them. We have some more data since that time frame, and we're going to really dive pretty deeply into the adrenal trial today. So, Sam, you ready to get into that? Absolutely, yeah. All right, so let's talk about the design. The title of the article is actually Adjunctive Glucocorticoid Therapy for Patients with Septic Shock. It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. You may have heard of that in February 2018, and the initial uh, author here is Venkatesh. What was the study design? So this was a multi-center, double-blind, parallel group, randomized controlled trial. They enrolled a little more than 3,500 patients with septic shock requiring pressors. Um, it took place in four countries over four years. They enrolled patients from 2013 to 2017. They followed these patients up to 90 days, and they used an intention-to-treat analysis with their primary outcome being 90-day mortality. Perfect. So those are a lot of things we want to hear, right, in these big, big trials. Multi-center, double-blind, parallel group, randomized. They hit a lot of the marks there. So the population that they were looking at, these are patients greater than 18 years of age with mechanical ventilation. All of them are on mechanical ventilation, documented or suspect strong suspicion for infection with two or more SERS criteria, and who had been on vasopressors or ionotropes for greater than four hours. Some of the exclusion criteria they used were any patients receiving systemic corticosteroids for any indication other than septic shock, those who received atomidate for induction, those who received amphotericin B for a systemic fungal infection, any documented cerebral malaria or strong aloides infection, as well as those with a life expectancy of less than 90 days from a pre-existing disease, those with any sort of treatment limitations in place, for example, patients with a DNR, and those who met all inclusion criteria for longer than 24 hours before enrollment. For sure. And the cerebral malaria and the strongoloides are kind of, you scratch your head for a second, then you realize you don't want to give steroids to those patients. Uh, the intervention, this is interesting. It's hydrocortisone, 200 milligrams infusion over 24 hours for a maximum of seven days or until ICU discharge. Very important. 24-hour infusion of this. And this was being compared to a placebo group. So for outcomes, the primary outcome, the biggest thing that they were looking at in this trial was death from any cause at 90 days. And they also hit a lot of interesting secondary outcomes, which include 
death from any cause at 28 days, time to resolution of shock, the recurrence of shock, the length of ICU stay, the frequency and duration of mechanical ventilation, frequency and duration of renal replacement therapy, the incidence of fungemia and bacteremia, and the receipt of or receiving blood transfusions in the ICU. The author's conclusions in the study were that among patients with septic shock undergoing mechanical ventilation, a continuous infusion of hydrocortisone did not result in lower 90-day mortality than placebo. Okay, so those are the basics of the study, what they did, what their author's conclusions were. Let's take a quick look at the quality checklist for randomized clinical trials, which we do have to tip our hat to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine, where they offer this 11-point review of a quality assessment of RCTs. Sam, tell us where, you know, they hit most of them. There's three where they didn't. Tell us about the first one where they may have not hit the mark. Absolutely. Number one, the study population included are focused on those in the emergency department. So that gets a hard no at this level. Uh, These were ICU patients only, so difficult to make conclusions about our emergency medicine patients. For sure. And then the other two where they, you know, you have to say we're not sure. The study patients were recruited consecutively. We don't know that. Um, There is not a lot of information about the nature in which patients were recruited, so there is the potential for selection bias there. And then, you know, was follow-up complete, which generally sets up for about an 80% follow-up for the placebo and interventional group, and they just didn't give us enough information there. So we have to say unsure for those two elements, and definitely no for is this ED patient population centered. All right, so let's just kind of talk a little bit generally now. We have did our structured assessment of the article, but let's just talk about some of the elements of it. First, I think it's important to recognize that this is a multinational study. There are one, two, three, four different countries involved, but the vast majority, 70% of the patients are coming from Australia. Just something to recognize and know. I think collectively it was really quite well done in terms of the risk for industry or pharma bias. The George Institute of Global Health was the group that ran this study, and while they certainly needed to get their hydrocortisone from somebody, pharma didn't get their sticky fingers into the study or influence it anyway, so it was the study results that I generally trust. All right, let's dive into the results a little bit. So Sam, tell us a little bit about what they saw in the earlier side of treatment in the first week or so. Yeah, so this is interesting, and I think kind of touches on some of the secondary outcomes that we're going to end up talking about. So despite the fact that there was no uh, reduction in the mortality, uh, early in treatment, we're certainly seeing in the results that they discuss that the steroid group had by far a higher mean arterial pressure. So at least uh, a map that was higher by at least five points uh, in the study group that got the steroids. There were also additional findings that this group had trivially higher lactates as well as heart rates. Right, and you know, five millimeters of mercury difference in patients that are on pressors, that's not something to scoff at. Absolutely. It touches on what kind of map target they were going for, which I think is another interesting point that we'll get into, where the criteria in the study and their stated map goal was uh, 60, which is kind of an interesting target point because most of the time, at least in the ICUs I've been in, we're looking for a target map of about 65. There's a fairly large amount of data now suggesting that targeting lower maps is associated with higher mortality. So that was certainly an interesting point. And if the steroid group is, in fact, having a significantly higher map, 
and maybe we'll see that play out in some of the other secondary outcomes, you would think. Yeah, it was an interesting kind of caveat there that we're used to seeing a map of 65 or higher being kind of our trigger for initiating um, vasopressor therapy in our septic shock patients. And I don't really understand why there was the difference of their initiation point was 65 or they were targeting a map greater than 65. When we look at the data, they were successful. Um, you know, both groups had an average map of around 70. So they were able to reach and, and exceed both of those target points. But it's weird that there was that difference there. And it's important going into that resolution of shocks. So this was not a trivial change. It was an actually about a day. In the intervention group, they had resolution of shocks at, of shock at about three days. And in the placebo group, it was four. So that that's nothing, not something to be scoffing at. And the actual time from discharge from the ICU was also significantly shorter by two days. The intervention group, the hydrocortisone group, had a 10-day collective length of stay in the ICU versus a 12-day for the placebo. But there's an interesting caveat there. Uh, Sam, tell us about the collective time in the ICU and, and how the two groups played out there. Yeah, so the time to discharge from the ICU was shorter in the group that received steroids. That was 10 days compared to 12 days for those that got the placebo. Having said that, though, um, even after you account for some of the comparisons, there's no significant difference in the number of days alive Uh, both in and out of the ICU, which was a little bit interesting. You do wonder if they're leaving the ICU earlier, you would think that these people are having, are going to have a, or be set up to have a lower out of ICU mortality as well. But Mm -hmm. it doesn't seem like that played out with the results. Yeah, that's interesting, right? If you're, if you are two days earlier out of the ICU, how is it not possible that your length of time alive and outside of an ICU is greater in your intervention group? And I think you maybe see a little bit of the difference there in looking at their actual reintubation rate. Um, what we found was that the steroid group got extubated faster, but once reintubation rates were taken into account, there's actually no difference in the number of days alive and free from mechanical ventilation, which may play into that you know number of days in the ICU as well. What do you think about that, Sam? It's, it's certainly something interesting. I think, again, maybe not for us in the emergency department, but it if the steroids are looking like they're getting these people off of mechanical ventilation earlier, that might not necessarily be the case. It looks like they were pulled off earlier, but Mia ended up getting put back on mechanical mechanical ventilation, which therefore interfered with the mortality rates that we were seeing. Yeah. And the authors actually said that they used the sort of time off of the ventilator. They didn't do a direct measurement of myopathy in these ICU patients, but they considered reintubation rate a sort of surrogate for that, which I thought was interesting. It's a little bit of a leap, but you could see how they could apply that there. Um, And then the other things that we saw that the steroid group got fewer blood transfusions than the placebo. Not really sure what to make of that. It's It's interesting, it's incidental, but I can't necessarily make heads or tails of it. So collectively, the statistically significant differences in the early time frame were the following. There was decreased time to resolution of shock in the hydrocortisone group, decreased time to ICU discharge, decreased time to resolution of mechanical ventilation, again with the caveat that collectively the amount of time off mechanical ventilation was not statistically significantly different, and decreased blood transfusions. What did they see at 28 days? So at 28 days, there was also no difference in mortality. So they're looking 
and there's they saw a 22% mortality in the steroid group versus a 24% mortality in the placebo group. But again, no statistically significant difference there. Perfect. And then their primary outcome was that 90-day mortality rate, right? And there was no statistical difference between these groups either. It was 27.9 in the intervention group, the hydrocortisone group, and 28.8 in the placebo. I do think it's worth talking a little bit about some of the adverse events that they list here. And maybe we're jumping the gun and getting into some of the critiques of the trial here. But I think it was interesting when you look at the uh, adverse events that they list in some of the tables in the chart uh, at the end of the paper there. There's a pretty low adverse event rate that is listed. And so this, it seems like, was uh, due to the fact that most of the adverse events were just uh, self-reported. And so I do wonder if this is maybe getting into some of the biases that the treating clinicians had, because certainly we're seeing that a very small number of patients had a leukocytosis that was attributed to the steroids, which, at least from my experience, certainly seems to be a lot more common. So as an example there, they're listing that six of the patients out of 1,800 patients were noted to have hyperglycemia that was attributed to the intervention. And certainly we know that from personal experience, these patients on chronic steroids or stress-dose steroids are certainly much higher risk of having hyperglycemia as well as a significant leukocytosis. But that was really not the case in this trial, at least not that they reported. Right, definitely. And, and I could see that definitely being a criticism as well. I mean, related to, you know, the surgeon who says that I know that the average adverse event rate for my surgery, you know, across the country is is 10%, but I'm really in the 5% range, and we all kind of believe that about ourselves. So self-reporting of adverse events, kind of a no-no, not something you want to see. And I agree, those numbers are surprisingly low. Uh, what did you think about the fact that they excluded patients that uh, received Atomidate? That was certainly an interesting uh, point. I think that, again, in our institution here, in our emergency department, by far the vast majority of patients who are getting intubated, we are using Atomidate as the induction agent of choice. Um, certainly there's been that classic argument that Atomidate can lead to some adrenal suppression, and that, it seems, was the primary motivator behind excluding these patients in this trial. However, I think that it would have been good to include some of those patients, at least for a subset analysis, to see if there really was any effect. Um, because again, we're definitely using Atomidate for the vast majority of our intubations here. I'm not sure about you at, at your shop. Yeah, we use Atomidate uh, not infrequently. And you know, when I do suspect that it is septic shock related, I will try to use an alternative, not because I necessarily believe that there is a true adrenal uh, suppression from it. But to take that off the table, um, I our ICU will have different physicians will have variable opinions of that. And if we can use an alternative, I try to. But I agree, it looks like the vast majority of the data at this point speaks against that. I could see why an author in this paper would choose to exclude it so that it's not a muddy issue for them, so that they're not criticized, oh, well, you included patients who received Atomidate. If you take it off the table, it's not a point of contention, but I agree that it's probably not necessary to have excluded these patients. So going back a little bit, one of the other critiques that we mentioned before was the way that these steroids were administered to these patients. And so I think whenever we're reading these trials, what we want to know is, what were the results? Is this going to affect my practice? And are they looking at things that I'm doing right now that I might want to change? And so 
with the dosing of the steroids, like we mentioned before, most of the time here anyway, we're administering bolus dosing steroids. We're, we're waiting until these patients are a sicker subset for one, and when we are choosing to administer steroids, we're using either Q6 or Q8 dosing of either 50 or 100 milligrams of the hydrocort. So a little difficult to say whether or not we should be switching over to continuous infusions with this data. I think that um, it would have been nice if they had enrolled patients or discussed the way that the administration of the steroids had been chosen because at least in my experience, it's been this bolus dosing. I'm not sure if there are other ICUs that are using this continuous infusion rate. Perhaps they wanted to just reduce some of the variability associated with bolus dosing and make sure that the timing was going to be the same for everyone. I can certainly see in a trial where they're enrolling you know, 1,800 patients that, depending on nursing availability and staffing ratios, it may be that the steroids are given at slightly different uh, intervals. And so giving a continuous infusion certainly allows for a more standardized approach that with less um, room for error, but I think that that raises a big question whether or not um, our current dosing regimen is appropriate. Definitely. I think that's actually really well said. Uh, sort of just taking that back, too, to the idea of you know the adverse events. Maybe we're going to see that doing a continuous infusion is actually going to decrease the incidence of the hyperglycemia. Maybe that's why they did. That's certainly drawing conclusions with little data. It's more hypothesis creation. But I think that's interesting, and I agree. It's it's different than my practice pattern. It makes me wonder, am I doing it wrong in its own right, if this is the appropriate way or, or if we're seeing that it, if we saw a major change in outcomes here, obviously compared to Corticus or others, then that would be a signal toward a continuous infusion. But I could see, one, that consistency that you mentioned, the decrease in dosing errors, the decreased number of missed doses, but um, it's not my practice pattern, so it does make it a little bit harder to absorb, retain, and reuse. The other sort of interesting point that you mentioned is generally we're reserving these steroid doses for the patients that are on a vasopressor but already that are sort of failing, right, that they're not doing that well on it. We're considering a second presser, which is usually vasopressin, and we're considering giving our steroid dose there, our stress dose steroid at that time, which does differ significantly from this patient population who anyone who got mechanical ventilation and greater than four hours of a vasopressor was put onto steroids. So I don't necessarily know that that makes them less sick. I mean, four hours of a presser and mechanical ventilation, you're a sick subset. But in our practice now in emergency medicine, the patients that get push dose or stress dose pressors are the ones that are already failing a vasopressor. So that's a major distinction to make there, right? Absolutely. I think that that was probably one of the biggest takeaways from the trial, at least for me, thinking about my own practice. Most of the time, we in the ICU are, like you're saying, if you're on NORIP, which is our go-to presser for sepsis, when we're adding or thinking about adding that second-line presser, then we'll often say, what the heck, let's throw in some stress dose steroids as well. And really, we're not. this trial doesn't give us any information as to whether or not that's the appropriate way to go or if we should be doing this a little bit earlier. Yeah, and, and I mean, if we're getting our patients off of pressers faster, maybe we should, right? And that, that would be the kind of coming to back to the valuable conclusions, and we'll hit those again at the end. But the mechanical ventilation on and off, that doesn't sound like it was a major benefit. Mortality, not a major benefit. 
but we're taking patients off of presser sooners. Maybe we should doing, be doing it in more of our presser-dependent patients. But the biggest issue I had with this paper actually is not necessarily the, the structure, the interventions, the nature of that, but really the depiction and conversation about the value in there. We saw no difference in the primary outcome, right? Let's have them dive more into these secondary outcomes. They did a fantastic job of keeping patient-centered outcomes at the heart of this, definitely their primary and most of their secondary outcomes, but they really did a pretty poor job of displaying and dissecting these relevant outcomes. If you look at their portrayal of the secondary outcomes, which is table two in the study, it's nearly illegible. You can't glean anything from it at first glance. You really have to sit down and dissect it to get into it. So I think they did themselves a huge disservice about not diving into that decreased need for pressers, that initially earlier extubation and leaving of the ICU. The fact that they didn't dive into that, I feel like they did themselves a disservice, actually. Anyway, that's just my rant about figures and the display that goes into an article. Certainly, they've succeeded. They've created a great article that's published in a you know a fantastic journal, but a graphical display would have been nice that is easily digestible. Rant over. Let's hit their conclusions, our conclusions, and wrap up the podcast. Sam, what were their conclusions? So once again, their conclusions were that among patients with septic shock undergoing mechanical ventilation, a continuous infusion of hydrocortisone did not result in lower 90-day mortality than placebo. Perfect. And how do you think that compares to ours? Do you, do you have anything to add or change in that area? No, I think that based on the data that they got, that that is a reasonable conclusion for them to state. But again, when we're looking at the data and trying to think about it from how it's going to affect our practice, I think that the more important thing to consider would be whether or not it had any effect on the duration of the mechanical ventilation like we talked about, as well as the decreased length of shock, which was the biggest thing. That was their secondary, one of their secondary outcomes, and there was a difference in both of those things. So I think to say that more elegant, elegantly, we could say a continuous infusion of hydrocortisone did decrease the length of shock as well as mechanical ventilation, but did not decrease overall mortality. Perfect. All right, so that's the adrenal trial. That is a review of the use of stressosteroids in septic shock. Thank you guys for listening. Sam, thank you for joining us. And as we close, you guys have been listening to his sultry tones for a while. Sam, just explain a little bit about your accent before we let the listeners leave. Sure. This is a conversation I have with just about every patient, I feel like. <laughs> it's an easy breaker. So I grew up in Scotland and moved to the U.S. a little while ago for undergrad and have stayed around for med school and now I'm married to a, a Vermonter. So I consider myself a long-lost New Englander at this point, and that's why I'm up here in Maine. Perfect. Well, thanks for joining us. Happy to have you and hope to have that fantastic accent on the podcast many more times. Thanks again.